the paradox of level two is the better it is, the worse it actually is. Like the, a really good level two system will make you feel like it's doing everything until that moment when it isn't. And then you are truly fucked because you've been so comfortable. And level three is kind of even worse. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. My name is Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor with TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I spend too much time on Twitter. That's it? That's your intro? That, that's uh, my job, I'm, Alex. <laughs> and I'm Alex Roy, the um, director of special operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show. I'm also the founder of the Human Driving Association, which is the spinal tap of drivers' uh, organizations. And I'm thrilled to introduce one of my favorite people. He's the most interesting man in automotive, and not just automotive. He's brilliant. He's a writer. He takes on controversy. He's an artist. He's a fan of all vintage video games. And he's just an all around wonderful person to be friends with. The inimitable <laughs> Jason Torchinsky. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for the, again, effusive uh, intro from Alec there. I appreciate it. But before we get into your very interesting life, I have a question for all of your love of vintage electronics and history and the backdrop in which you sit now, which appears to be your in-home lab and garage. Yeah. How come you, you've never uh, expressed, I guess, interest in vintage um, electronics like hi-fi, tube amplifiers and horn speakers? That's okay. That's an interesting question. I am partially because I'm I'm not great. I, I adore music like everybody. I have very little musical skill. And I've tried a lot of projects to make music in various ways where my lack of any ability is is hidden. So they tend to be, I go for lo-fi things like this is an old Apple II with just a square wave beeper. I've done projects with that. Anything where you start getting into words like hi-fi and people appreciate music, I feel like I have no business playing in that space because it is a chink in my cultural armor. I can't, I don't have skill there. And um, so n- not even like a DIY single tube mono home amp, something really Torchinsky, something really weird. I mean, I, I certainly I've built things and played with things that make noise uh, a lot, but the <laughs> quality of the noise is never been what, like the, the crappier, the better. And as soon as you get into things where people are talking about the warm quality of sound from a tube amp and they're getting real, you know, and they're worried about the type of cable used because they can hear the difference. That's not a space I want to play in because it'd be (laughs) like feeding garbage to a gourmand. It's just not it's not what I'm interested in as far as that goes. But I do love I aesthetically I respect that equipment and I adore it. I've seen those old tube amps, the horn based things, and I, I, I love them, but it's um. Sometimes you have to know where your limits are, and I feel like that's not a playground where I maybe should be allowed. It's funny because that is a great quote for the entirety of the internet and Twitter discourse. (laughs) Nice. Do you ever combine this love of music and automotive together for like automotive quality sounds? Me or Alex? Oh, no, for you, Jason. Well, I sort of – I've played with – I tried making like a car horn um, organ – uh, it's, it's not a pleasant thing to make. Uh, I've tried that. And, um, you know, I, my musical projects, because I have no skill, I've done things like, well, this is an old Apple II right here. And I used, I worked with these poets once where I would take, I had them write poems and then I would take the, you know, the ASCII characters, like every letter has a numerical equivalent. So they'd write a poem and then I take the numerical equivalent of each letter and I translate it into a tone that this old Apple II can make between zero, the numbers lined up. It's zero to 255 or the number of tones I could make. And that also fit with ASCII character numbers. So they would have to write these poems that would then play back in somewhat of a musical way. And it was really difficult to make something that sounded good and was also recognizable as a poem. But that's about the level I work where the odds are so stacked against anything sounding good that it almost, the any noises you make are considered like, okay, I'm not musical at all. So, <laughs> okay. So, so we should back up a sec for folks who, who unlike, I think the three of us haven't been reading. I mean, I've been reading your work since as long as I can remember being in the car online world. Uh, for those who maybe don't have that kind of background, um, 
I, how would you describe sort of your your career? You've been doing this for a, a while now. And by yeah. this, I mean like a really diverse, like I don't know how to even like define your genre uh, or your oeuvre uh, besides Porchinsky. Uh, so so how, how would you, how would you sort of explain like what you've been doing, how long you've been doing it, how you kind of got into it? Sure. Um, so I've been, I've been writing like professionally as a car journalist of some kind for about 10 years now. Um, before that, I was... Um, I was a graphic designer and interface designer and illustrator and uh, artist. Uh, and I wrote some comedy and I was in a sketch group and I did stand up and I did all kinds of things like that. But I always loved cars and I always did projects involving cars and I always had interest in cars. And I don't think I really realized you could just write about cars for a living until I, um, I early, like back in 2007 or so, I had this weird British car called <clears throat> a Reliant Scimitar. And someone from Jalopnik, um, I through various people, I found out that like they, I let them know I had this weird car and do you want to drive it? And Johnny Lieberman over at Jalopnik back in like 2007 came and drove it. And that's when I realized this is a thing where you can do this as a job. And then I got really interested in it. And um, then, uh, you know, we, uh, my wife and I, we, 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 she got pregnant and we, and I had to get rid of this little startup company I had. So I got a job teaching and I hated it. And that's when I realized I got to do something else. And so I remembered these contacts I had made. I did a lemons race and I met more of these guys there. And I wrote that up for Make Magazine. And then um, I wrote for Auto Week for like a month. And then Jalopnik reached out to me. And that was in like 2000, late 2011. And they let me just write whatever I wanted, which was, I, I don't know why they chose to do that, but I'm thankful that they did. And it's insane, isn't it? It is insane. It's insane. It's insane. Yep. But did they actually edit your stuff? Or did, you, did you just publish whatever you wanted? Shockingly little. That's the thing. It's like the very first article <laughs> I wrote was about how to break out of a car trunk. And then not long after that, I did the big thing about the Pixar being wrong because eyes should be headlights and not the windshield. That was like my third article. I agree. That That's brilliant. The other thing you wrote that really changed my life and, and messed me up and, and caused me many nights of depression and confusion was when you were attempting to speculate on the evolutionary path that would lead the cars to be alive. Yeah. And then you, you and, and since you also are an artist and you know, it's, it's a shame. I think, I think it, it should be like a gate. Like you should not be allowed to publish. Sorry, Kirsten, Ed publish prose explaining something unless you can, draw an explanation of what you just wrote because in that piece you speculated that there were in fact some form of bipedal life had evolved yes to merge with vehicles and there was a disgusting diagram of what that life would look like <laughs> inside the car yeah it's vile. vile it was and i can i can never watch any of those movies again no but it, it, there's only it's the only path you can take why do they have human written languages like we have their tires would not be capable of rendering <laughs> those glyphs and yet they have they have all the political structures of humanity they have different countries there's tokyo there's different language like there's no way around this this had to have evolved from human life and then what happened to the humans it's complicated and no, wait, 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 yeah was <laughs> the, what's the was the, the thesis that there was a nuclear war and humanity evolved into the vehicles or merged with them to stay alive? It was, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what, there was some kind of cataclysmic change happened that made it more beneficial for people to remain in their cars all the time. And then that's when the integration began to happen and wastes and food had to be routed through the vehicle. And the reason the eyes were in the windshield was because of a large magnifying like visor thing. I feel like is why you see the giant eyes because those are actual human eyes. But the human is like truncated limbs that actually guide the steering rack. It's, it was complicated. And the best part was I actually got to go to Pixar. This was they were doing a promo for like Cars 3. And they wanted journalists to come up there and just talk about the movie. So I got to sit with, I think, Jay Ward and the other guys who actually are in charge of ev everything in this franchise. And I didn't talk about the movie once. All I wanted to talk about was my theories about how it happened and grill them about it. And they were surprisingly willing to talk about this. The interview is still online. You can see it. It lasts like an hour. And then after I got back, uh, I realized Pixar had complained to Jalopnik <laughs> because I uh, ignored so many things about actually promoting the movie. But they were actually cool about it. No, that's great. 
Uh, you you honestly can't buy that kind of promotion. Is there like a is there like a secret like conference where people like discuss the cosmology of the like Pixar cars like universe? I don't know if it's that secret. There are groups that discuss this in detail, and there even in the movie itself, he let me he let me know about some hints about the cosmology because there's in the courtroom there's a courtroom scene in the first movie, and there are these two framed images on the back wall, and he pointed and I think the guy in charge pointed it out to me. One of them is like this kind of ethereal factory with like these beams of light coming out of it that's like their godlike creator factory kind of thing so they thought about it a little bit too but what they didn't think about is like in their you know the tie-in movies like planes and everything there's world war ii planes in the cars movie there's a world war ii jeep which implies there was a world war ii which implies there's a car hitler out there so (laughs) you know can you imagine? I mean, I'm not, I don't want to go down this road because we're here to talk about your new project. But if you take it to its logical extreme, if you have sentient vehicles that were at one time human, now they're these hybrid human vehicles. Yeah. And then at a later date, somebody begins developing AI and autonomous vehicles. Then you'd have a two class system. Yeah, you would. You would. You would. You would have a slave class. You, you would have. A, yeah. You could have a civil war. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Anyway, but that's. Let's, let's, I think uh, that the <laughs> one thing I want to highlight here is that you, in some sort of serendipitous, you know, chain of events, happen to be in the sweet spot of like when blogging, when you could just blog, right? Yeah. And you had all this freedom. I kind of wonder if you think if this all happened, but it was 2021 or 2022, if you had, if that sort of magical time when you can kind of do whatever you wanted if that's over now i don't it's a, i mean i often think about like a lot of the things i write if i had to pitch them to an editor there is no <laughs> way in hell they would agree to run these things because i've written so many for example there's a whole subcategory of things i write which are just about taillights and there's no good reason why any editor would hear would would take a pitch like i want to write 1500 words about a particular type of taillight that only showed up on beetles from 1950 to 1952 they would none of them would go yeah yeah great idea none of them would say that but somehow, is that not seo driven <laughs> no those are shockingly not seo driven they're just weird <laughs> fetishy things i have But the amazing thing is, and the lesson I've learned is that if you're enthusiastic about literally anything, people will feel that. If you can convey that as you write, people will get into almost any subject that there is no way you would, if you told them at a party, you want like, hey, why don't you have a seat? I want to talk to you for 30 minutes about side marker lamps. They wouldn't (laughs) do it, but it can work. And I think if I had to pitch that to an editor when SEO, when when people were more aware of how things worked and how traffic worked, I don't think it ever would have flown. And then I wouldn't have this wonderful job I have. You know, it, the interesting thing about your new project is that it is it is you and the you who the, the you that could not get hired if you're starting from scratch today yeah. needs to have his own brand. Why don't you tell us about the Autopian? Yes, please. Thank you. Oh, yeah, the Autopian. So, you know, I've been at Jalopnik about 10 years. Uh, David Tracy, uh, one of my partners, has been at uh, Jalopnik for about six and a half years. Between the two of us, for a long time, we you know, we were kind of the traffic leaders, shockingly, because David has a fleet of old Jeeps, and he does these amazing trips where he'll go out to the middle of nowhere and find something that's far beyond salvaging and get it running again and drive it around and just put it in his body and himself through all kinds of absolute hell. I've seen him. I've seen him do really – he once called me because he had trench foot while he was on one of these trips. <laughs> he gave himself trench foot because he didn't take his shoes off for like days and days at a time. He's, so he's a lunatic. I'm, you guys know what I do. and But the thing is people read this stuff and they like it and we just want to do more of it. The Jalopnik has been great to both of us for a long time, but we had both hit a point where I think we – didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't want to become like an editor because then I'd have to stop writing. Um, the upper management we had issues with. We felt they weren't paying attention to readers in the same way anymore. The experience of going to the page had been getting worse and worse with more and more ads. Um, there was just a lot of directions that they were looking to push this that we didn't feel would serve our readership best. And we didn't like where that was going. So we thought, let's just see if we can do this on our own. And we looked around a lot of places and, you know, we talked to the usual 
like uh, venture firms and things like that. And none of them really felt like a, the right fit. It felt like we just end up in the same place again with someone in charge of it who didn't really give a shit about just having fun with cars and writing about cars. So we luckily, I know um, Bo Bachman, who's, uh, the, you know, his family and he, he now runs the Galpin uh, empire of dealerships. He's the guy who wrote uh, the forward to my book. Um, and I like him because he's a genuine, he loves cars in like a really fundamental way. And the reason we became friends is I was at some Ford event that happened when I lived in LA and I noticed this weird little dune buggy in the corner and I realized it had an engine from uh, BMW 600, like the big Isetta. And I talked to him about it. And apparently nobody had mentioned that before, but then he got excited. And then I realized we had similar weird taste in cars. And occasionally I would write about something crazy and obscure and he would go out and find one and buy one and do more research on his own. And so I'd worked with him on other television projects and he's just a super, he's just a kind, wonderful guy. And he loves all these cars and he actually has the resources at his disposable as disposal to make this thing happen. So you know, we talked about it a lot and we went back and forth a lot. And then we just decided this makes sense. And so um, we're all partners together in this thing. And we have another partner named Jeff Scobin, who handles a lot of the business stuff that we would all be terrible at. And we're, you know, we're doing it. Um, and the whole point of this new website is, I mean, it's, it's so basic. It's just, it's amazing that it's hard to understand sometimes, but it's, we just want to write about cars in the ways that we love cars and we want it to be as inclusive to every perverse idea or weird kink anybody may have about cars. We want there to be a home uh, on the Autopian and we want to do something that I haven't seen done a lot in the industry here before, which is get real experts in a direct line of communication to people. So we've got an engineer who worked for Jaguar and Tesla uh, who's going to be writing direct columns and we'll take questions right from readers. And we have a designer who worked at an OEM who can't even give his name because he still works at an OEM and he's going to do, do all kinds of design insider things. And we have an ex Land Rover, another designer who's actually going to take crazy ideas and draw them for you. We have physicists and all kinds of great people who are going to be regular contributors. The Lane Motor Museum and the Peterson Museum are going to have recurring columns, for example. So this is the kind of thing where we're not just looking at other journalists. We're trying to find uh, people deep in the industry who can, because I think the what everybody underestimates and what SEO people underestimate is just how, how willing people are to really like get deep into stuff, like a deep dive people actually love and they will read long articles if it's interesting. And we, so we just want to provide everybody with as much interesting content about any automotive or even transportation related thing they can think of. And that's, uh, that's kind of the general goal. It's pretty broad, but it's also pretty clear. Are you going to stay away from sort of like the daily news grind stuff and really kind of, unless it's real, because some of the articles of yours that I've appreciated are just kind of general commentary is responding to like maybe stories about Tesla or tweets from Elon. And you are always good at like pointing out some of the obvious stuff that yeah. would always make me laugh, but it would put it so clearly it was hard to argue against it. Not me personally, but let's say, you know, others who have different opinions on things like full self-driving. Yeah. So are you going to do that type of stuff or are you going to really focus more on, like you said, sort of deep dives into specific slices of the automotive world? I think we still will do some of that stuff. Um, I'm still going to comment on autonomy because it's a huge, it's a big issue and it's, it's a radical change in the way we deal with cars. So I'm still going to have commentary on that. Whether I may comment on every every video of a FSD failure, um, maybe I won't do that as often because I did feel like after a while at Jalopnik, maybe we were just doing every single one of them and it was kind of, maybe it was a little too much. Although I feel like they're important things to point out uh, and I'm not going to stop that. And we, we will want to have, we will want to cover the news because I think a lot of car people like having a news kind of just like knowing what's going on in the world. So we'll have, we're, we're hiring writers who are going to handle more of that kind of stuff. So you really would just have to, you know, you go to that token every day, you get both your new stuff and all of the other stuff that we provide. So we'll have some of that as well. Although I don't think that's going to be quite as much the main focus, but 
when it comes to uh, autonomy, um, that's still something I'm interested in, and I'm still going to write about it. And in pro- probably in a lot of the same ways I wrote before, where I would, I'm. It's a little bit less about the nuts and bolts tech of it, and more about the implications of it and how we interact with it as humans and drivers and like these bigger implications, just asking the questions of like, you know, are these things we actually want if we're doing them? Is this the way we want to go about these problems? Um, You know, my issues with level two, I still don't think level two is a viable solution for anyone really. And I know there's, there are people who definitely disagree with that, but I'm still going to talk about why I just don't think it makes a lot of sense and why I think it's more problems than more, more trouble than it's worth. What is your thought about, I'm sure you've seen some of the coverage this week. I had a reporter, um, Abigail Bassett at this event as well. The Mercedes Benz like ride along level three event that just happened in LA. And it's interesting. What What is your thought? Not maybe not just specifically about Mercedes approach, but like this whole concept of level three. Level three is one of the trickiest ones. I find level three the most confusing level of all of them. And we've seen we've seen companies like Honda said in Tokyo or it said in Japan they were going to introduce a level three car. My problem with level three is it's in some ways it's even more confusing than two. Again, the whole SAE level system is weird in a way, and I don't think it makes a lot of sense. And I've proposed different ways to have alternatives, like my can you sleep or not sleep rating for it and things like that. So in in, in Mercedes level three, how how are they talking about doing it? So you don't have to pay attention until it needs you to pay attention. And then if you can't pay attention and take over, what does it do? Does it get off the road? Does it just stop like all of them do? I'm not. I'm still not clear with how any of them are planning to execute what they see as level three. Uh, I, I'm yeah. with you. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, the part that uh, I find funny, fun, or is that the thing everybody wants to know is the one thing that none of the media coverage discusses, which is what happens if you don't do anything. Exactly. Like, That's where's the most stop? Like, if you just show me a video of that working well, I'm convinced. I'm sold. Yeah. I'm sold. But then the argument is this, like if the vehicle could, let's say, pull over instead of stopping in a freeway, which would make me feel uncomfortable. I don't know about you all, but stopping in a freeway is a terrible idea. (laughs) Yeah. Like, let's just stop this object while other objects that are just as heavy or heavier are launching themselves at 75 miles an hour and see what happens is a terrible idea. Hazards aren't going to save you. No. But if a vehicle can actually pull over, right? Yes. On its own or maybe drive on its own for another mile till it's safe to pull over. At what point isn't that really more of a level four functionality in a way? Yeah. I mean, you could argue that. I think, and I, honestly, I think that is the, this, this is the most important question for all of these things beyond level two. It ha- there's like the fact that we it somehow decided it was okay for any of the level two vehicles when they don't get input to just stop seems crazy to me. That like anybody driving on the highway would never just stop in an active lane of traffic. You wouldn't do it because it's insane and suicidal. And the fact that somehow that's fine for any of these things it, it seems ridiculous. So it, yeah, you have to. And I know it's hard. I get that if there's a sensor problem. And it's impaired and it has to get off the road. That's that's all that like everything goes against it being easy. Like you, getting off the road is hard. I've written about maybe there needs to be infrastructure changes to make this more possible. And I know like Alex thinks that's definitely a non-starter because, you know, the, the legislation required. And I get why. I think he's not wrong. I mean, that's probably true. But we have to do something to agree that getting out of an active lane of traffic should be priority one if we're going to move ahead with any of this stuff, like why isn't that the main priority for all of it? Like, cause that, that's the only break to get to the higher levels. I think you're, you're absolutely right. A it, it is, as we've just, it's a really hard problem. I mean, just the sheer variability of roads. Right. I mean, you think about, you know, we have some old roads, you know, out here where it's like, you know, there's metal curbs and basically no, you know, shoulder and stuff. Sure. And you just, you couldn't, there'd just be no way to, of course, it would not be a road that you'd have these systems activated on. Um, and I think with level two, you know, I think it, it kind of, it, it you can sort like, it's not ideal, obviously, to have the vehicle just stop. But at the same time with level two, and this is like the big problem with level two is that you are driving. 
right? Yeah. The, the system is not driving. You as the human, you are still driving at all times. And actually, I think like one of the best, um, but, but I think this topic is a really important one. A, yes, to improve the technology, but B, also like people need to know this. Stuff. Like this is the education piece, right? Yeah. People need to understand that like, if you're not there taking over, whether it's level two or potentially even level three, we don't know the details of what like this Mercedes system does that like this thing is not going to just save you. Right. Um, and I think one of the most powerful pieces of, of this kind of education that happened recently was um, uh, uh, our friend uh, uh, Kelly Funkhauser from Consumer Reports did a segment with CBS Morning where they were demonstrating this these level two systems on track. And she did something that no one had ever done before, which is show what happens when you run out of road, right? Like show what happens when these vehicles, you know, when these systems, you know, enter circumstances that are just, they're not at all designed for that fundamentally demonstrated for really like it was the first time I could think of where people were able to demonstrate and because it was on, on track, which not everyone has a track to demonstrate this stuff, but it showed this stuff is not autumn. This is not autonomous. This is just Something that's keeping you in those lanes. If those lane lines disappear, if the road goes away, like if things happen, you're out on the grass and like, and you I, know, driving towards a tree. And what did it like, do? It, it was really powerful. What did it do in the end? Did it just stop and put its hazards on? She, yeah, no, she, it, she was, she was going straight down this like kind of like long straight and it was all, you know, she was feet off, hands off and got to the end of the track and she let it, it just drove right onto the grass and started heading towards some trees. And she had to take over and stop and say, look, like these are the <laughs> limits of this system. And, yeah. and it's hard to demonstrate those li- the limits of these systems because you're, it's inherently unsafe. Yeah. But I feel like to move forward on this education piece, like that's the kind of stuff that really shows people like this isn't self-driving at all, and which I, is, which is what people need to understand. And I think the, well, also, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Well, well, I was just going <laughs> to say. I've noticed speaking to the education side, the amount of di- this may be the one point where I think there's the most misinformation about it. Like so many Tesla owners I've talked to when talking about autopilot or FSD genuinely believe if they are unre- if the system asks for their input, they're not responsive in some way, it will pull over. I've talked to more than one Tesla person, multiple, who believe that it does have some capability of pulling off the active traffic lane, which it does not. And I did a test with someone who had a Tesla, and we just showed this. It's what it says in the manual, but it doesn't matter. Somehow there's this idea that these things will get off the road, and it's pervasive, and it it shows also how little people read the stuff in front of them. The, there's nothing in the manual or on the screens that says it'll pull over but everybody wants it to so badly that it feels like they've convinced themselves. And I think if you did a poll of people who have cars with some sort of level two system, I think if you ask them what happens if you get no response, I think a shocking number of them will believe it'll get out of an active traffic lane, which of course it won't. And again, I'm sorry, Isn't, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Kirsten. No, no, it's, it, it's, this all speaks to even a, a, a larger point that I think is missed a lot is that when you're looking at the SAE levels, which again are problematic, I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that what they're talking about is is like how well it functions. Exactly. I think you're right. And it doesn't. It, all it is listing is the qualifier. So, you know, uh, a vehicle's, one vehicle's adaptive cruise control following, you know, the distance and also it's like how it responds to braking or keeping a lane and another vehicles can be t- very different, but still both considered level two. And that is where I think a lot is lost is that yeah. they all think that level two means a certain level of functionality, but it, that is not what is happening. Here. That terminology is bad. The use of level inherently implies a, you know, leveling up, like an increase in, in quality and, and what it can do when it's just about how the machine and the human interact. Level's the wrong word there. And that's why you see so many people arguing you have to get through level two to get through level three or four when that's, that's actually not the case. That's not, that's not what it's about and it's not how it works. And that's kind of the SAE's fault uh, for, or yeah, I don't know about fault, but it's, it doesn't yes. work. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a fault. It's not a Hey, Jason. Way. Yeah. Have you ever, so years ago, Toyota, uh, you know, Gil Pratt got on stage at CES and said, Toyota's working on this guardian system. And, you know, I'm a big fan of this notion of, another way of doing driver assistance. Mm-hmm. Have you ever gotten a demonstration or anything in person or anything around about that system? Because I've been waiting for years for somebody 
for them to invite someone to see it in action. Yeah, anything I've, I've heard. I heard about it in the past, and I'm, in the past, I've written also. I know it goes by a lot of different names, and I think I just called it like a reverse level two, where you're in control all the time, but there's a the guardian kind of idea, like something's watching for your mistake. So it it's the opposite. You don't take over when the machine fails; it takes over when you fail. But I the know, engineers would call it parallel automation versus series automation. There you go. So yeah, that's um, so like the idea of a parallel automation system seems to make the most sense. And I remember, yeah, Toyota had the guardian system. And there were, uh, I think a few other companies had talked about it as well, but I've never seen it actually implemented or, or even advertised or even promoted in like a concept idea, which seems like if safety is gen, but that's, that shows the fundamental lie though. The idea that safety is the main reason and the argument that everyone says it's safer. That's the reason it's not really true because we're humans and we're lazy. And what's the real reason is everybody wants to sleep or look at their phone while they're driving safety would be a parallel type system you're driving in full control and yet there's a machine also in full control ready to take over if something goes i mean logically all all adas that we have today um would you get in the vehicle and whatever level is set uh, to on as a default if you get drowsy it would increase the automation not turn it off right that's completely (laughs) counterintuitive it's totally opposite of of what you'd want I, i mean Take my mother, who has voluntarily agreed to stop driving. Like, if she got in a car today I, and, and didn't pay attention, I would want everything, every piece of ADAS in that vehicle sure. to light up like a Christmas tree <laughs> and call 911 at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's a genuinely useful thing. And yeah, the, the idea that in level two, if you're not paying attention, its solution is to stop. I mean, I get why, because you don't want to encourage people to rely on something that's not fully autonomous, but at the same time, that's kind of the last thing you want to do. <sighs> what do we know, Jason or Kirsten, or do you know, what is the Mercedes-Benz liability policy for that level three system? They, they claim they take over. Like, is there a light on the dash that says we have liability now? <laughs> uh, that's a good question on the liability. I mean, my, my understanding is that they're taking liability, but I don't know how that's communicated. How did you know how they describe it? Like, how did they describe? Do you know how how did Mercedes describe what their system did? I have. Well, I wasn't there, but I am currently editing a story about it. Wait a second, wait a second. They didn't invite you. They did not invite you. No, no, no. They they did invite me. They actually invited me in December to fly out to Germany, but then this thing called Omicron happened, and I didn't go. So no, I sent someone. And yes, and also I wasn't in the driver's seat, so to me, this is like a first taste. So. When it's when it's the actual sitting behind the wheel and having freedom, then I will take the time to do that. Man, level three. So I'm, I'm re- I just brought up an article about this um, from like I think Motor Trend wrote about it, um, where they describe it like level three is where it gets interesting. The guy says in level three, the vehicle's in charge until it's not, which just feels like that's also. I mean, I didn't think there was a worse case than level two, but that's that's worse. Because are you referring to what the, how they describe it or the system itself? Well, kind of everything. My thing, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't. I'm not going to name names. I've already been down this road with a few outlets. But using the word autonomous at all for systems like this is just unserious to me. Well, this is the hard part because so now we're getting into this world where um, companies are talking about the system being autonomous, but it might be a small feature, right? Traffic Not an autonomous system. And so it is becoming even more complicated and we're finding ourselves being like, all right, well, like what exactly is happening here? And that's why we try to really push to just describe what the feature does instead of giving it a name. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of the cover, that's hard to do though. I mean, you certainly can't do that in a headline, right? Unless you're planning on, you know, having a hundred word headline. Um, sometimes. So that's where it becomes difficult. And we go to the shorthand of calling something autonomous or calling something self-driving or driverless. And, and they all, depending on the person's education, have a different meaning. Yeah. So, so this is why I think it's really great. By the way, I didn't know going into this, I wasn't sure what sort of that, that you would continue to comment on, on driving automation sort of generally at the Utopia. And I'm really glad you are, because I think that like for a, Everything that you said about just like passion and enthusiasm is so true. And that's one of the big things that I think driving automation technology lacks. Like the Tesla people bring it, 
but yeah, they leave <laughs> like knowledge and reason and facts and like a whole whole bunch of other stuff behind. Yeah. Right. Um, and and you know, there's a lot of people out there who who, you know, have the knowledge and the facts and the reason and all that, but don't really have that passion, that enthusiasm. I think you kind of uniquely really have have, you know, both of those things. But the other thing that I think that you bring to the table in this space that is super, super important is sort of being rooted in cars and driving. Because I think part, you know, part of the the AV education problem, quote unquote, is sort of just people not understanding the technology and and especially the, you know, where the human interacts with it in a variety of ways. Um, but but that's only part of the problem. The other problem that part of the problem that I like kind of seems to come to the fore more and more, especially when you talk about level two, level three, is like people don't really think that much about driving itself. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the most influential things in, in my thinking about all of this stuff was going to Toyota uh, and the Magical Mystery Plant Tour a few years back and and them saying, you know, well, when we decided we were going to get really into factory automation and what and, and the first step we took was to create this gigantic global training organization for people. And I was like, wait, what? You're getting into automation and you're and the first step you took was to train people. And they're like, yes, there is no point in automating something until a human has mastered it. Right. Yeah. And the human really understands every piece of it and what mastery even means in that task. And then it makes sense to make the investment in automating it, which is which is not the way people think about automation at no, all. They think of it um, as a release from knowing anything, really. Yeah, exactly. And I think and I feel like so like the reason that people get confused about level two is because we have this super and 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 there's like level layers to this, but like you know, people think like, oh, well, steering and braking acceleration, that's driving, right? And therefore, if the if the system is doing that, then it's doing all the driving and yeah. and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you're doing all the time, but you're probably doing it subconsciously. Yeah. And then you sort of layer on just a general kind of casual attitude towards driving. And so, so my point, my point is, is that I think like it's just as important that we help people really understand, especially as you get into level three, where this stuff gets more complicated, really understand like what is driving, what are all the things that go into it? And like just developing more awareness and understanding of that and then putting that in the context of these automated systems, um, because I think you kind of have to work the problem from both ends to have any kind of real effect. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that a lot because you're absolutely right. Like the drive, okay, we're right now, like people, the driving community is everybody drives and uh, most of the people on the road, it's all muscle memory. Cars are very much, they're almost like a prosthetic. Like when you're good at it and you've been doing it for years, you feel things. You feel weight shift in your seat. You you know what's going on. You do that. You're not really thinking about it. It's not just it's not just steering and pedal input and looking around any more than like writing is just grammar and vocabulary. There's something else there. There's like a fundamental idea of the task you're doing and an engagement with it that happens. When you're in a car and you're really driving, it's an extension of your body and you're doing it. And just automating the physical actions isn't really enough. There's the awareness and there's the sense of physicality and the realization that you're in motion. All of these things that's amazing that humans can do it all, but we do it shockingly well. Yeah. And all the people who are always you know, talking about how amazing autonomy is and can't wait like to denigrate human driving. But humans are fantastic at driving for things that were never made to process visual information that anything faster than a running pace. We're doing really fucking well. And, yeah. and the idea that driving is it's, – so it's not just those mechanical things, which is why when you have a system like level three and it's driving until it isn't and then you – and then when it decides you know, you're on your phone, Mercedes goes ahead and says you can be doing secondary activities on your phone and then if it cuts off, that transition between you not providing any input or awareness of your surroundings – and then having to is really underestimating what driving is because you're in a different frame of mind when you're driving. You're accepting you're in motion. You're, everything gets trained back. And the idea of just jumping into it, it when you're already in motion, I don't think is realistic at all. And it looks like this thing, the system they're calling drive by, it looks like they're limiting it to like 37 miles an hour below in traffic situations. Okay, that's better. You have more of a buffer before you're going to whack into something, but it's still not great. And it also shows you this level three can't expand to highway speed driving if that's the expectation because there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what driving is. 
And it's frustrating because there seems to be this push that somehow this doesn't exist, that driving is just these mechanical actions and is not a whole perceptive way of thinking. That is largely subconscious. That's why when you're driving, you can think about other things so well because it's all so much muscle memory and ingrained things. And the idea yeah. of making that switch, you know, even if it's great for hours, the 15 to 30 seconds when it's not great is how people end up dead. And that's the only thing we should be looking at. Well, and, and that's why it's so frustrating, too, to see people say like, oh, my level two system, like, you know, it makes me feel so much safer. And it's like, well, that's part of the problem. It, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It makes you feel safer because you are, even though you know you're supposed not supposed to, you are already yeah. transferring responsibility to the machine that you're not supposed to be doing. That's right. Best. And in reality, what you're actually doing is called a vigilance task, yes. which is much, much, much harder for people to do than just driving. Yeah. Right. And this is why I agree with you about level two kind of in general. I get why people like it, but like it, it, there's an illusion there yeah, because it's, it's actually, we're better, we're better at fully engaged driving. Yeah. Amazingly good at it. As you say, then we are sitting there waiting for something to go wrong. And then the second that, that goes wrong, gaining full situational awareness of the situation, yeah. right? Getting complete control of the car, making the right evasive maneuver, not losing control by overcorrect. Like there's, it's just so much fundamentally unsafer. Right. And the paradox of level two is the better it is, the worse it actually is. Like the, yeah. a really good level two system will make you feel like it's doing everything until that moment when it isn't. And then you are truly fucked because you've been so comfortable. So that, that's that's inherently my issue with level two is it's it doesn't get better the more advanced the tech gets. It does as long as you have the requirement that someone has to be ready to go in a moment's notice. It's inherently flawed. And level three is kind of even worse because the the expectation of your awareness is no longer even on the table, and yet the demand for instant takeover is still there. Like, what's the point of level three? Why the fuck would you want level three? It means the car maker says you can do other shit like on your phone and then you still have to be ready to take over. Why do they think that's okay? I don't, I don't understand it. I think 3016, just to clarify, I think 3016 says like level three, it can't be an instant takeover. There has okay. to be some warning, but they don't, def they How? don't define it. They don't they say don't it define, has to be 10 they don't seconds. Define the number. Yeah. They don't define yeah. the number of seconds. And we've all seen those concepts. I, I don't know if you remember these, like in, 2017, 2018, maybe even earliest 16 and 15, where like Volvo had one and maybe Audi, where like the interior would change. Yeah. Oh, like, the disappearing wheel. And, and, yeah. Right. The disappearing wheel. But like, let's think that through for a minute. So that is another fail potentially that oh, yeah. could, could, you know, like if the, if the steering wheel doesn't correctly deploy back to you, but that also means that the vehicle needs to be predictive um and anticipate what's going to happen and allow enough time for then these motorized features to get back into place give attention back to the driver and then great it's you know moved on now now the human's in control so it just your your point about awareness is really interesting to me because quite honestly it's one of the reasons why I think every new driver should drive a manual because you have you 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 learn to predict behavior to make it easier to drive sure. when you're driving a manual. Yeah, um, but, um, yeah. Uh, no, but no other form of driving, at least for me, teaching someone, let's say, how to drive. Like I can't. There, there's nothing else I've been able to come up with that that teaches that awareness at all. And yeah. right now, the type of tech we have, it's like doing the opposite. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. And because you're right in a manual, you, cause there's that whole other element of your connecting with the mechanism of the car. And, you know, you know, if you're coming down to brake, you might want to downshift. You think you, it forces you to think ahead a little bit and modern cars. I mean, comfort, comfort and seclusion, like a modern car, you're in a very much a cocoon, like climate control and soundproofing and all these things are things we all desire in cars but it does a lot of removal from you from the realization that you're in a metal box going a mile a minute down a road. The little shit boxes I drive, you are never forgetting that because they're <laughs> tiny and tinny and noisy and windy. And that's uncomfortable for a lot of people who would just never want that. But I kind of love it because I'm never forgetting exactly what I'm doing. I, I would like to ask you about that 
uh, the the tale of the Chang Li. Yes, yes. It, it, it could be an epic multi-part. <laughs> it's like the Lord of the Rings, but for cars. Um, could you uh, – I'm fascinated by the Chang Li yeah. because – it's inexpensive, lightweight, it's electric, and it accomplishes most of what people who buy EVs want yeah. in a cheaper, more compact package. And yet, I'm going to stop with the and yet. Could you tell us the story of the Chang Li sure. and your views on expensive, big kilowatt pack EVs in the context of what you've learned with the Chang Absolutely. And I actually, I've learned so much with the Chang Li, and I'm glad you brought this up. I was actually just talking to David about this the other day. So just in case you're not aware... Uh, back when the pandemic happened, I had a, I usually do a series. I, I called Jason drives, where I'd Go out and drive weird cars. Then all travel was shut down. I'm thinking, shit, what am I going to do? So I realized, well, what if I just got a weird car, but it's not like we had a lot of budget. So I thought what would be fun is let's find the cheapest possible thing that you could call a car in the world and buy that. And I went on Alibaba, the website, and I did a lot of searching and I realized in China, there's a whole category of cars that they call old man, happy cars generally is the <laughs> translated name. And they're these lit, dirt cheap electric vehicles with questionable legality in most of the cities. Um, and, but they're, they're, but they're enclosed. They're a car. They're just slow and tiny and cheap. And I found one that was 900. It was like $960. And then you add like 300 for the batteries. So it's like $1,200 for an electric car, 1.1 horsepower, uh, top speed of about 20 to 25 range in the back 20 to 30 miles. Um, but it seemed amazing and it was ridiculous looking. And I ordered one and it would cost about three grand by the time you did all the shipping. And it came to my house in a colossal, well, it came to a port in a giant cardboard box. And I got it and I unboxed it. And I've, I've been, I've had this thing for like two years now and I drive it just about on a daily basis. Uh, basically, so I live in a college town. So that means there's a radius of about a five mile area where road speeds are low and there's a high density of just stuff. There's takeout restaurants and grocery stores and, and, you know, my kids, friends and all these things that I can drive this ridiculous little car to. And this thing is so much better than it has any right to be. It's got an all steel body. It's got a backup camera. It's got a fucking backup camera <laughs> on it. It's got a little heater. It's got a radio that'll play MP3s, windshield wipers, turn signals, like reverse everything. It's like, it's everything. It's got, you can fit, I fit four people in there before and it's slow as hell. And up a hill, my kid can run faster than it. But <laughs> generally overall on the flat, it'll do about 20 to 25 miles an hour. I did a full range test and it'll go 27 miles before I have to recharge it, which only takes like probably four hours because it's just not that much battery in there. It's just a bunch of lead acid, 12 volts under the seat. And it's, this thing is, it's so useful. Like, honestly, it covers 75 to 80% of the driving I have to do in town. Take my kid to school if I want to, take him to a friend's house, go to the grocery store, pick up takeout, all that stuff I can do in this car. Who's What's the legal top speed of that thing? Uh, legally 25 is it legal? It has a windshield wipers, right? Has windshield wipers and it fits in. So in my state of North Carolina, there's a category called low speed neighborhood electric vehicles, which was basically made for golf carts and crap like that. And it fits there fine, but it's got full weather protection. It rains a lot here and I drive this thing in full rain and it is totally fine. And I love it. And it's so David, since he was an automotive engineer, introduced me to this concept called, um, it's like vehicle energy demand. It's like the, basically what that means is how much energy does it take to move a given vehicle down the road? So all of the EVs we're producing now are basically, they're efficient and they don't burn gas, but they're all high demand vehicles like a Mach-E or a Tesla or whatever is heavy, like 4,000 to 5,000 pound cars with massive battery packs and like to move like a Model X down the road or, or a Mach-E or any of these guys down the road takes a lot of energy. And if you're just going from your house to a store and you're not really going past 35 miles an hour, it doesn't matter. You're not doing it any faster than really I'm doing it in my little piece of shit Chang Li. And the thing is, if if people had if like for densish cities, if you had something like a Chang Li, like something that's like 40% better than a Chang Li. So maybe you could hit 40 miles an hour in it, and maybe it was that much more comfortable, but still well below what like a modern electric car is. It would solve so many problems. You just wouldn't need that big of batteries because you just, the demand for energy is so much less. And I feel like I've proven this with how often I've used this ridiculous little car just fine. And 
you could argue it's going to be unsafe, but at the speeds you're going, and if more people had these things, it's not that unsafe. I'm not taking it on a highway. I'm not taking it on a road that's 45 miles an hour. I'm in a town. Like, it's not a problem. I've been driving this thing pretty much daily for two years. I'm not dead. And, and like, <laughs> it's never even been a problem. And you could make this thing so much better. That like, mine has like, brakes operated by a stick basically there's no hydraulic brakes they're just on the rears like there's so many places you could make this thing safe enough without going to full car level now i I, i'm man i this is dear to me there was at one time greater creativity around smaller form factors and of course the morgan three-wheeler exists (laughs) now what what was the other one that uh, there was a Netflix movie a few months ago, the the Dale. Oh, the Dale, yeah, yeah, the Dale. Have you driven one of those? I, I know. Um, the Dale is uh, yeah. The the Lane has a Dale. Oh no, that's a Davis. They have the Dale was the fraud. The Dale never actually the existed. Was, oh, fraud. they never yeah. made it. Yeah, because you know, it, it seems like if a Morgan three wheeler had like a roof, <laughs> Reliant, and, Reliant made those things for years, like the Robin. Yeah. Was that yeah? But the Robin had the one wheel in the front. It was but very yeah, dangerous. but you—I mean, it wouldn't take much <laughs> to like flip that thing around. I mean, the three wheel about- is the key because it gets around all the law stuff. Did you're, you ever ride the uh, was the the Dutch the Carver was that that was called Oh yeah the I remember the Carver and yeah, it was the thing that yeah the whole the front turn. would lean over but the rear the tire you ever drive one of those I haven't been in one of those but I remember when they came out and I remember Mercedes had a concept that was similar that would like lean into turns. There, there've been a lot of. I've driven plenty of little electric, or uh, just not electric, but I've just of tiny three wheelers. I've driven you know Messerschmitts and Peels and Isettas and things like that that have had that kind what of. What about layout. the Arkimoto? Because and because I, I think you you touched on something here, which is the college town thing, right? And I think like as yeah. Americans. We're used to, and I think this is also something, a reason why people misunderstand why they fall for the Tesla thing, why they misunderstand autonomy. We're used to cars. We think of a car as something that goes anywhere, everywhere. If you're going one mile, you're going a hundred miles, you're going up to the hills, the desert, the rainforest, whatever, right? It has to work in all of them. And this is why people buy SUVs and people buy trucks. But those of us who live in college towns, and by the way, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which is another classic college town. I rode my bike everywhere for the most part. Um, but like, that's where Arkimoto is from, which is a little three-wheeler semi-enclosed. It's not fully enclosed, which is kind of an issue in given how much it oh, rains there. Like the Renault but Twizy even, also, yeah. Yeah, before – yeah, okay. So the Twizy is a great example of this too. But um, even before Arkimoto, there were like at least two other – possibly even like three other three-wheeled electric vehicle companies in the same vein in, in Eugene, Oregon. And so the, what, there's something – Yes, they, they're tiny. They were tiny. Like you never heard of them. You only saw them around town. Plus, this like the Zap Zebras. Tried a lot. You know, the you Zap know, Zebras were popular yeah, there. Zebra you remember those? One, the little Chinese conversion thing. I mean, there was Zebra. There was like Think had a little electric car. Actually, in Durham, North Carolina, there was a company that was making, um, uh, what were they called? I test drove one. But they were even more minimal and they required you to pedal some. The, the <laughs> problem with a lot of these things is <laughs> they don't understand. People are lazy asses and they want to stay dry and comfortable and they don't want to pedal shit. So the the Changli actually does it just fine because it's approached from the perspective of a car. It's not a half bike. It's just a really tiny car with a tiny motor. That's it. You know who's doing this? Well, you, well? Sit, you sit higher as well, correct? Than yeah, sit, yeah. These other vehicles. Uh, you, you, it's yeah. You sit about like small car height. I mean, you know the Renault. Well, cer- so certainly higher than like the Morgan or you sit higher, some you of these. Sit higher than a Morgan. Yeah, you're, you're pretty upright, and it's like a weird little dome-like body that's actually kind of roomy. Uh, the Citroen new that has the Ami. You know the new Ami that they have. Yeah, had? yeah. Uh-huh. That's actually a very good example of how this could evolve into something. Like that's yeah. very close to what I'm thinking of. And the thing is you just don't need much more than that for getting around. You really don't. I would go to the grocery store from my house in my Changli and I'll have a neighbor who'll do the same thing in like an excursion. He doesn't get there any faster than I do. He's not yeah. loading that thing up for 16 months of groceries. Like we're both doing the same job and I'm using a tiny fraction of the energy he's using. And I'm having just as much fun. And and it's a fraction of the battery too. I mean, if everyone has to like if we're if we're really serious about electrifying, everyone has to move to electric cars. If everyone gets a Tesla, like there aren't enough minerals 
coming out of the ground to even get close to that, right? And so I think like kind of also like in order to embrace a lot of the flavors of automation that are coming down the line, we have to think more about our driving in conscious ways. I think this is also a way in which we have to examine driving and cars and our relationship to them more so that we can start to understand like, are we making rational decisions about this or are we buying, we spending a lot more money to buy a lot more vehicle for our 1% or 10% or 5% use cases, which is then super inefficient for the 90 to 95 to 98 or whatever percent use cases? Or does it make more sense for us to buy something small, something like even like a leaf, right? Like a, or, 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 you know, something that's more of like a, even a real car, quote unquote, but only has like 100, 150 miles of range for those 90% of the use cases during the weekdays when we don't drive more than a hundred miles yeah. and then have something like a hybrid pickup truck or SUV for the weekends. Right. And I think that's, I think that's an extremely valid point. And I think you also hit on something that's really important for all this. And that's the rationality angle because cars yeah. are not rational. They have never yeah. been rational and they will never be rational. And trying yeah. to, to sell them on that will always fail, which is why this can actually work well because these things can be so cheap and you can, you don't have to, they don't have to be that good at quality in a lot of ways. Like the suspension design on my Chang Li is robust, but it is like blacksmith primitive. It is like <laughs> model T grade level and it's fine. You don't have to waste a lot that of shit. money on that shit. So you can put your money into the fun part. Wouldn't Blacksmith be a great brand name for a micro mobility, durable <laughs> micro mobility? A tough little truck, like a little EV truck with like black metal stuff. Yeah, yeah. people would love Blacksmith. Blacksmith trikes. <laughs> Ask the okay, man so here's the, big, here's the big question though. Have you convinced anyone, maybe not to buy this specific vehicle, but oh. your argument, which certainly makes a lot of sense. The problem I see is that Americans, sorry, but tend to be um, oftentimes are driven by various vices, including keeping up with cer certain social norms or socioeconomic norms, like having a nice vehicle, also thinking they need a large vehicle, larger than they actually need for, you know, a family of four. So there's that factor and, uh, you know, status. So have you been able to convince anyone to take yes. this route? Absolutely. And it's, it, this is the most exciting part is like, since these Chang Lee videos went up and they've done stupidly well on like YouTube, millions of views, um, the Chang Lee people themselves, the company has mentioned, they have sold a lot more in America. And there are people, there's like a guy who has started a whole business selling these Chang Lees. Um, I, he's, he, he like saw these videos and he, he, he already was doing some sort of import export kind of business. He's selling Chang Lee's there more and more they're coming up and you can find them in more places. And there's companies like, um, oh, what are they called? There's a company that's make little importing little EV trucks for like college campuses and things like that. But yes, a hundred percent people come up and they like this thing, this silliness of it. And again, this feeds into the irrationality argument. The silly look of this thing is appealing to people. It's fun. It's not a gray blob like so many cars are. It's actually something people want to drive. And that people, anytime I park it anywhere around town, people come up and they want to know about it and they ask about it and they genuinely like the idea. There is not everybody, but there is a decent percentage of the American population who I think would be willing to have some of these as long as they're kind of fun and not so self-serious. And I think there are places where companies, if they're smart, can make these things fun and flashy, practical and silly. You could have a statusy version like a Aston Martin Signet style where it's <laughs> tiny but lavish inside. There's a place to do this stuff. It doesn't have to be rational. And I think the simple nature of the mechanicals of it buys you more freedom and room to play with everything else that you encounter that people actually like. These have to be appealing, but I think that's possible. Yeah, no, you make a great point. I love like like well-engineered small cars like the Toyota IQ that the Signet is based oh, yeah. on. Like these are miracles of, of modern automotive engineering, but they never work. They never make money. They're always too expensive. They're not cheap enough. And I'll tell you, you're right. Like Kirsten, Kirsten had valid points. Americans do love big, heavy status endowing vehicle, all that kind of stuff, which is why Tesla does so well. Yeah. But Americans also like cheap crap. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And I think there is something about that really cheap, as you say, that really just sort of simplistic, kind of flashy, but cheap and like right, hoverboards. Hoverboards were like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it, these things are like there's something appealing about like, oh, it's yeah, maybe this isn't like, you know, going to solve all my problems, but it's like, you know, 
a couple hundred bucks or like, you know, $1,300 for a car. Like it would have to be, it'd have to stay cheap. I have to stay fun. You're not wrong. Kristen, about any of the things you said, you're a hundred percent right, but I don't think it's quite the universal about Americans that people say. I think there's a point. No, I mean, I would, I, I, I agree with you. I'm just pointing out that that is a large faction. I will say though, that Ed is right as well, which is especially if the timing is correct and it is weirdly kitschy yet attractive, it becomes its own status symbol. I mean, we see this with the way teenagers adopt random trends of things that are not expensive at all. Like they're just all of a sudden everyone has to have them and they're like kitschy and cute, stylish, weird, whatever. And then all of a sudden everyone has them. Like the VW Beetle, right? I mean, the VW Beetle came out when American cars were bigger and heavier and flashier and more expensive than, than they'd ever really been up to that point. And, and it was, you're right. It was the, it was the antidote. It was so refreshing because it was so different. And frankly, you look at the, the average new car price is now over $40,000. Maybe we're at that moment again. Maybe we're yeah. at the tail fin kind of era and it's time for another VW Beetle. So. And maybe <laughs> Jason Torchinsky is the man to start a used kind of a Changli dealership. Come on down. <laughs> but I mean, the Beetle, the Mini, the 2CV, like all of those. All of those cheap people's cars became classless for that very reason. Like the status didn't even matter after point. Like you had rich people who had minis, like the Beatles had a mini, confusingly. Right. And then like everybody, you know, like Paul Newman had a, Paul Newman, yeah, he had a Beetle. Like, you know, it didn't, it didn't become like you're driving a cheap car. Like modern cheap cars are not honest with themselves and they feel cheap and that makes them shameful. Like a Versa. Because a Versa is designed because it's trying to pretend to be something it isn't. And that's not what a Mini or a Beetle or a Citroën 2CV ever did. They were just what they were, and they had dignity that way. Every modern cheap car is pretending it's something it isn't, and everybody sees right through it. So they need to get back. It's got to be cheap, small, fun, and that's how you win. Yeah, and that, uh, well, I think the fun part is is the big catch because no one's going to be like, a Versa is so fun, and it stands out. Like, it's no, not a novelty. Penalty. It's not – right. yeah, it's, it's a sad homogenous, and they all kind of look like – um, you know, but it's interesting to me though, that now this is a much more expensive version, but like the Honda E, for example, oh, adorable. I love some those. of these vehicles, yeah. but they'll never come to the United States. And it's because of the category that I presented before. Right. Yeah. Um, it, but I think the Honda E would sell well here. I do too. I mean, just like the Honda fit, right? Like mm-hmm. that was had a, it's like a little cult following because, of like, turn the seats down. And actually a lot of bicyclists would use that vehicle because you could put a full bicycle inside that vehicle, the way that the seats went down. Yeah. And that's a fun little zippy car to drive. Um, Unashamed and practical. And it didn't feel like you could justify, like for any of these vehicles, the key is you have to be able to say you chose it. You wanted this vehicle and it wasn't like a thing you had to get. Like a Versa feels like a car. Like if you're driving a silver Versa, it feels like this is all I could get. But if you have a yellow fit, that's a little bit different. That means I like it. It's fun and cheap. And I chose to have this. And I think that's that's the key differentiator there. All right. So You're running out of time. Yeah. This up. Um my one question is, is there anything that this new venture isn't going to tackle? Because it sounds like it's gonna tackle a lot. Um Yeah. Um, is there anything that you're just gonna, you know, leave for others to to handle? We did. We did. We have talked a lot about um, back in the Jalopnik era. We tended to push more uh, into political stuff sometimes, and I think we decided we wanted to just keep it more car focused as much as we can, um, more car and transportation focused than, and leave the the more political stuff to some of the other sites. Not because we were ashamed of any of the views we had, but just because it felt like it was needlessly distracting in some ways, and to some degree. Uh, love of cars is one of the things that bridges all kinds of groups together in a way that almost nothing else does. And you can be, you know, uh, on the far left or the far right. And I bet you could find a car if they're both into cars that they could talk about uh, together and comfortably and happily. And I think there's some value to that to some degree. So I think we're going to focus more on that kind of stuff. And that's not a hard and fast rule. Maybe something will be important enough. We'll want to mention it, but um you know, maybe a little less newsy, although we're going to have that there, but we don't have a lot of boundaries right now. We're just going to do what we're interested in and we're going to pay a lot of attention to what our readers like and what our readers seem 
to be interested in. We really want to foster that kind of community feel. Like what do what are people interested in reading about? What's getting them excited? And we want to have as much feedback as possible. So I, I don't think we have like super hard and fast stuff, but it's always just going to be stuff we get excited by. And if we're not excited about it, we're probably not going to cover it, which might mean maybe we'll miss some important press releases from a car maker because fundamentally we don't really give a shit about a new Camry. Maybe that's going to happen, but that's <laughs> yeah. fine. That's totally so fine. I think that's okay. I think that, yeah. that, that's and, okay. Or and I want to say, I don't care about them either. Go ahead. Too before we go that, um, you know, as a, a veteran of what, you know, the quote golden age of blogging and everything um, and having seen, you know, having been part of a community that, uh, also like felt very much like a community and and where passion was really the the heart and soul of it and having seen that sort of slip away both from sort of that site and and a lot of other sites that I where I thought like that that was just such a fundamental part of of what the site was about and how it worked and frankly seeing you know capitalism finance private equity however you want to describe it kind of really fuck this stuff up so badly. Yeah. I have to say that in 2022 to see someone like you starting a site and to, and just the way you spoke about it earlier, like I literally got goosebumps <laughs> um, because like, it's the kind of thing that like, it, fe- it felt like it was going away. It's part of what makes the internet the magical place that it is. I really hope capitalism and private equity and finance and whatever can somehow wrap their brain around the fact that like you can't quantify everything. And sometimes no. you just have to let passionate people be passionate and create a community around them. And that investing in that is always going to be worth it because if you're not investing in that, what the hell are you doing? Um, and so thank you so much for like waving that flag. But I also wanted to mention like by Jason's book, Robot Take the Wheel. I think it's the only book about like autonomous vehicles for kids which frankly, given the importance of AV education is probably the most important thing any of us could do on that front. So I also want to shout that out, get a copy. It's really good. And um, yeah, Jason, like best of luck. And I'm just Thank so you. excited to see, see what happens with this. I really appreciate all of that. And uh, yeah. And Autotopian launches March 32nd. March 32nd. Cause we said it was going <laughs> to launch in March and we didn't want to renege on that. I guess some calendars may list that as April 1st, uh, it's alarmingly soon. It's coming up, I guess, next Friday. Shit, is that right? Friday. Yeah. yeah so yep. we, yeah, we should so let you get to it. Yeah, it's soon. We got a lot to do, but we're going to do it. And we're super excited about it. And I'm so excited to hear that you guys get what we're doing in such a fundamental way. And I really appreciate all of that. So thank you again. All right. Well, thank Absolutely. you. It's the Autopian. Follow Jason at Jason Torchinsky, uh, Jason Torchinsky on Twitter. Uh, Robot Take the Wheel mentioned that. And, uh, We'll see you all here again on another episode of the Atonicast.